Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. So Father, we thank you this morning we could gather here. And God, we thank you for who you are and what you've purchased and done for us. God, that every person in this room has purposed or abandoned. There's not one person in here who's passed their time of being used for the kingdom, but rather, God, in full surrender and submission, we trust that when we give our lives to you, it is you who makes our lives have purpose and meaning. So, God, I thank you for our church, and I thank you for what you're doing here, and may you continue to add purpose and meaning to every person. In Jesus' name, and the church said... uh, Amen. Eight or nine weeks in any of our services. You know, we've been in a series on the book of James. Um, this is actually the second to last week. We are drawing to a close as we go into Advent season um, in December. And uh, I want to encourage you uh, to really, these next two weeks, I'm really like, I really feel like James's story, I, I've mentioned it quite often, why I think James has significance, but I really believe these next two weeks are important to the formation of our lives around who Jesus has created us to be. Every week I kind of add the historical context, and that context is this. James, uh, you might have more in common with than you realize. What I mean by that is James grew up a uh, sibling of Jesus, so many of us have that in common. Just kidding, none of us. Uh, However, James grew up a doubter and a skeptic. Somebody who was close to Jesus but doubted who he was in the person yet at the same time was like, ah, it's not really for me. Many of us have walked through seasons like that where we've gone through life and it's like, okay, Jesus, like, you know, I know that you maybe want to get close to me, but I don't know if that's really for me. Well, the author of this book lived that life. However, post-resurrection, he realized, okay, wait a second, this guy just raised from the dead, maybe I should be a little bit more open-minded. And so he was, converted to following the way of Jesus, what we see about James' pillar of the church in Jerusalem. That church in Jerusalem is the very first church on the face of the planet that practices the ways of Jesus together. We know through later on in the book of Acts that Christian, that term, didn't exist until the church of Antioch was established. And so later on, what happens is is in the beginning, they're all trying to figure out what is this collection of people that's just gathering in this city that's not Jewish, but kind of Jewish and doesn't really practice Judaism, but at the same time, like, just kind of ushers in this, this idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus as he literally and centrally leads out that church in Jerusalem. What we see through historical context is that the apostles, the apostles who were in that specific city kind of start scattering and spreading out all over, but James stays where he is, and not only does he stay where he is, he continues to be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Now, many of us, though, here's the funny thing. In, in, our, in our Western context in American Christianity, a lot of us, we just think, okay, the closer to God I get, the easier life becomes. The bigger my bank account is. The easier everything is. And in fact, I just become, you know, a perfect person. And that's not really James's story. That's why I feel like it's important to talk about James's story right now in this day and time because I believe James's story is a reflection of what it will look like a little bit to live for Jesus, maybe not in the 
the gravity of what happened to him, but in the understanding of if that happened to him, we might go through some difficulty. I say that because many of us, that might even be our complaint, why we don't, why would, could something this bad happen to me when I follow such a good God? How could I be somebody who, you know, I'm a good person, why do bad things happen to me? And so these questions we all wade through. See, James' story is of a man who is Jesus' brother, the first pastor, incredible apostle, and then all of a sudden persecution. Starvation even in his congregation that's so bad they have to send out letters to other churches taking up offerings because then culminating with his untimely death and martyrdom for his beliefs. Why do we talk about James? Because I believe he's such a clear picture of resilient discipleship. And see, a lot of us, I would say this, we want to be disciples of Jesus. However, when resiliency is tested, it is so much easier to say, I want to be a disciple, but then all of a sudden when that discipleship has, not realizing that James' story is one who gave it all, But even more than that, Jesus' story is of one who gave everything. So with that, let's talk about James 15 through 4, verse 10. So we're going to jump into it. It says this. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. The good thing about that verse is it only applies to back then. doesn't apply to now at all. It's a joke. I'm going to read it again. Where, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. Once again, a lot of people, they have the, the argument, does the Bible make it have any merit or meaning on life today? And I think the deeper you explore it, the more you find out that what was going on with humanity back then is not a whole lot different than goes on with humanity now, except we just have iPhones. <laughs> Let's continue reading. It says this, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I want to say this. We're going to, I'm going to read that one again because it is our job to sow righteousness, but it's sown in peace by those whose fruit is righteousness, sown in peace by those who make peace. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about peace this morning, but before we even get there, I want to ask you, is when your righteousness is sown, or even if it's not sown, but it's semi-present, right? How peaceful is your presence, and how peaceful is your giving of it out? See, I think a lot of the times, if we really assess the landscape of humanity today, peace that is sown and peace that we give out, it's, we walked away from and we're like, man, that person is peaceful. They have a peace about them. We're going to explore that a little bit today. But let's continue reading. It says this. Uh, verse, oh yeah. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? 
For he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We're going to break down that term a little later. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Outside, like, okay, what's going on here? Like, okay, doom and gloom. What, What essentially is this? I'm titling this passage today in this kind of part eight of James. I'm titling it Pleasure and slash or peace. Pleasure and slash or peace. Because what we start to see is this. If you notice in the beginning, we've got him talking about peace. Then he switches to pleasure. And then a little passage about what happens if your pleasure is in the wrong places. And what it really is, is if your pleasure is in the wrong place, your peace won't be existent. And I say this today because here's, here's really where I'm going with this. What's happening a lot of the times is we try to, we, we, we inherently want the peace of God while living in the pleasure of man. Meaning we have to make a choice. Do we believe that in pursuing the peace of God and the right? So peace and pleasure becomes what we live in. Because if we choose just to pursue the pleasure of man, what happens is, is that pleasure sacrifices the peace God wants to give you. I would even say like this, many of us, we even, whether we want to admit it or not, we do things that bring pleasure to us. However, at the end of the day, when the deed is done, it sacrifices peace in our minds and in our souls. We do things in which we wish we wouldn't do them. However, the instantaneous pleasure that we experience immediately constitutes what we think is a peace inside of us, but it's actually not a piece inside of us because when our pillows, when our heads hit the pillows at the end of the night, we realize that, man, I don't have the peace that I seek. So I want to challenge us today around three kind of thoughts or three ways to know if our pursuit of pleasure is costing us our peace. How is it, what happens if maybe you're looking and saying, God, I don't have peace in my life. I don't have peace in my thought, peace in my heart, peace in my spirit. I don't have peace at all. Is there a possibility that I'm, that I am pursuing a pleasure that is sacrificing my peace? And if we were to all sit here and really assess, I think a lot of us, and not a lot of us, all of us in here, can right now think of one way that we're pursuing something that sacrifices the peace that we really wish we could feel. So with that today, three ways to know if our pursuit of pleasure is costing us our peace. The first one is this, the opposite of jealousy and selfish. You can assess your own selfishness and jealousy and that of those around you by the peace they carry and bring to the environments they enter. Peace is a product of dependence on the Prince of Peace, rhythmically and in discipline communing with him. Time with the Prince of Peace in his word and spirit help us sow peace, reap peace, and become peaceful. You know what's interesting? Many of you guys maybe didn't even notice this when I read right in the beginning. Is it lists all these, it like lists these like things and then essentially what it does is it, it pivots from them and it talks four different times about peace in two passages. 
And I also, I, I really, if I'm honest with you, I don't think the opposite of is, is not having peace. But James introduces this thought that it is. And if you start to think about it, you realize there may be some truth there. Right? Selfishness and jealousy is what we start with. And then he talks about how there's a purity and a peace that comes when we don't live and choose those things. Now, at the same time, selfishness and jealousness really just comes down to what we don't have or what we wish we had or focusing on ourselves having more. But peace, both gentle and pure, this is a term that when we start to explore it, it's like, okay, this is not the opposite but it becomes the sacrificial lamb of this lifestyle. See, if you think about it, if you're sitting in this room and you're like, man, I'm not gonna lie, I probably, in some cases, I have sacrificed what I don't have or pleasures that are maybe impure that really I I do notice an absence of peace in my life. I wanna say this to you, that you have opportunity we're gonna get into of how you reorient to a life of pursuing the peace of God and trusting that he will give you the pleasures of man, but before we get there, I don't, I, do you have three people that you get around that when you get around them, they're just, they're peace? And I say that because for many of us, we can't even name three. And I feel like some of us were like, I have to say this person or that person, or I'm not gonna say or whatever. But if we're really honest, there is some a marking characteristic on our personhood when we encounter peace. Down, right? We've got the New Testament where it talks about that dwelling of the Spirit that's supposed to come inside that then produces fruits from that plant that is growing inside of us. And the first three things, love, it produces the fruits of the Spirit. Joy, it produces. Then peace. You know, I think a lot of us, we talk a ton about how we need the love of God or we need to love our neighbors or we need to love more, which I think is important. But how many of us have the marking joy as well? I believe that order wasn't just like, oh, let's draw some really holy characteristics out of a hat and let's all live and try to do these things. No, it was love, joy, peace. I say this to you today because what would it mean to be a person of peace? Toward when you get around people, they don't even need to know what you believe. They just know that you live differently because the peace that you sow and the peace that you show starts to be the peace that they want to pursue. And I say this because in this day and age, many, many people are wondering, how can I, what can I do to help change the world? Just be a peaceful presence. I mean, literally everything we are sold, every algorithm that is transmitted for us is all anxiety, is all worry, and it is all fear. Why? Because if it can suck you into a black hole, it can suck your peace. I'm going to say this in all the services. The reason I love my wife so much is because literally there is not a more physical embodiment of a peaceful spirit and soul. And many of you guys in here are like, wow, you're you're pretty peaceful. No, I'm not. (laughs) I am not. Right, traffic, golf. Um, I'm doing better after last week. I am doing better. I feel like I did it wrong. <laughs> what does it mean to be a person who carries you because of what you do for them? That's what we're called to do. The second thing this morning is this we must assess the motives within asking for pleasures. 
Many times we are asking for something to complete us that was only intended to complement. If your search for completion is by what was only intended to complement, don't be upset when God tests the heart and motive through trial and timing. If you can learn and lean into him deeper, and you might find the pleasures you seek might actually be replaced by the peace he brings. What if I told you, right, that if you chose in age, what happens is, is we've chose pleasure and then we hope, okay, well, I hope the peace shows up eventually. But what you don't realize is that you've chosen man's fallen image of pleasure. Think about this, right? In unpacking verses, uh, chapter four, one through verse four, it says this, the source of your quarrels and conflict, the root is pleasure. Lust and murder, the root is pleasure. Envy and coveting what you don't have, the root is pleasure. Asking and don't have and then angry with God, the root is pleasure. The root of all of these things is this, unhealthy and unsubmitted pleasure. For a lot of us, even, we could sit here and be like, well, I feel a little bit attacked. It's okay. It's more of a challenge. Don't worry. I'm not trying to get all up. But I say this because, you know, in the summer, we, we had a town hall training and we really talked about sexuality and just... Um, really went through different stories and experiences and really kind of what the word says and all of those because we want to be a place where our spirituality touches every part of our society and personhood. But one of the points that we really brought up was essentially that a sexuality in, in the that is this, is that we look for people to complete us. However, the only person who will ever complete you is your creator. People will compliment you, but they will never complete you. And that is why you see people who think they're good. If I get this person, if I get this marriage, and they're unhappy, they're bitter, or they, it doesn't work out, it's because we've sought something in someone that they could never do for us. See, complimenting and completion is God closing the says that. See, some of us are like, well, why didn't he just like give us perfect relationship in the beginning? It's the same thing that happened in the garden. Free will. You know, the worst thing, I, I, I'm obviously married, my wife's in the front row, is if my wife didn't have free will, is that love? And, and I believe God didn't want to create this world in which there wasn't free will to pursue love because he knows that love outside of free will is not love. And to complete you is based off of the free will choice you have to pursue his completion. And in pursuing his completion, he will add the compliments that you seek. See, many of us in this room, that paradigm is even challenging. Can God complete me? Do you believe he can? Do you believe the one who knitted your framework in humanity together could be the one who completes what he started? I believe he can. You know, I believe he can because how is it that our religion, our, our philosophy of beliefs has transcended time? How is it that Christianity is still talked about? Jesus, just when it happened, no, Jesus was from a town of less than 5,000 people. I mean, I'm sorry. He's, he was from nowhere land, and even where he was in the context of state and time, less than 50,000 people really heard that message. How is it that we're still talking about it? Because people discovered completion when all they had known was compliment and their souls were changed. 
I say this to you today, many of is we're using pleasure as the completion tool, not realizing that pleasure will be a complement to how he completes you, but it will not be the thing that ties it all together. And, and we talked about it in the, uh, in the town hall trainings when we're talking about sexuality and we're talking about same-sex attraction and we talked about kind of scripture around those things. But this is much bigger than even that because it's not about depriving certain people of complete always. And I trust in whatever the compliment looks like from your scripture and from your word, but it is first completion and then it is complementation. And your pleasures are not what will complete you. His peace can complete you, but your pleasure will not complete you. Your idea of what you think completes you won't complete you. Your creator is the only thing. Beware the attack of duplicity and double-mindedness. God will allow you to go through the tests in order to purify the heart's motives. Don't run from them. The test of duplicity is to think you are allowed a heavenly brain and way of being, and also a dark side that no one knows about stemming from an unrenewed mind. If you choose the work of renovation, you will know personally the power you carry to restore. And in restoring your own world, you might find he uses you to restore this world. You know what's funny about this? In the Greek, double-minded doesn't exist. I'm dead serious. So in our Bibles, when we read, James 1.8 actually says this, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. There's two references in James where it's like our English language, our authors are like, okay, we want to simplify this so people understand it. So double-mindedness, if you look it up in the Greek, double-spirited. And that word is the word dipsikos. And it means wavering, uncertain, doubted, divided in interest, or... Our term today, double-minded. Now, many of us, if I looked up, if I stood up here and said, hey, man, does any of us ever feel double-minded? You know, where our minds want to do the things of God, but, uh, but at the same time, our minds wander to not really doing the things of God. Many of us would be like double-spirited. That's a little bit more pointed, a little bit more intrusive. But that was the original language that James uses. A double-spirited man, unstable in all his ways. What did he say in this passage? I'm going to go back to it. It says this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-spirited. You know, if you... But the sin that they need cleansed from and purified from, double-spirited. You know what's interesting? I think for some of us, we can sit here and say, okay... Any of us, me included, there's areas where we all, okay, well, I'm not going to lie. There probably is some duplicity. How do we change that? How do we, how do we make sure that we're not living double-spirited so our peace and our pleasure are connected and not separate? It's a great question, Romans 12, 2. I want to break down another word for you today. You know, you will always live in darkness And this is what you have to understand. You'll always live in darkness if you do not take up the challenge to renew who you are every single day. You will always live double-spirited. You will always live double-minded. You will live this way unless you take up the choice to renew yourself every single day. 
And where's the most famous passages of how we renew form to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, many of us have heard teachings on in the world is it even greater context. Why? Because the in the world and not of the world doesn't mean it's like, all right, let's all hunker in our bunker and wait for the second coming. Like, let's go off the grid, get our own commune, turn this thing into a full-blown cult and hope it happens. It's like, no, that's, that's not what this is saying. It literally says you're going to be in the world and not of the world. How are we in the world but not of the world? It's just your mind. And some of us are like, well, that seems to just this, is do not, you can be in the world, but make sure your mind is not of the world's mind. How do we know that this is intended purpose? Because it says your transformation comes down to if your mind is renewed. Why would your mind need to be renewed if it was fallen? Why would, what is transformation rooted in? A mind that takes up a process of being renewed into the creative intention of God, how he deserves Because some of us work better with pictures. You know, the word renewal here is anekinesis. And it actually means to renovate or completely restore the interior of something for the better. This is literally a picture of fixer-upper. Okay, I flipped a few houses. It's terrible. Don't do it unless you want to, but it's fine. Uh, I I fixed up a few houses, and when I fixed up these houses, the key to fixing up a house is when you walk through, you know what to look for, and you know if the worth of time that you're going to put in and the money you're going to put in is going to pay the dividends of what you think it could. Because there's plenty of people who buy a a dumpy house and try to fix it up all to find out that it costs more than they thought and it's more time than they can invest and guess what? Then it's a wash. So how is it that you do it and it pays out a price? Is he's challenging us to renovate the interior of our minds to make completely new through a process of renovation in which we completely transform the inventory of our mind to the better. So how do you transform your world? By the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? By renovating the structure of how it thinks and functions to make it completely new or better. What are my renovation process of what that peace might require? We want the, the pleasures of God, but we're too busy married to the old way of pleasure that we've been adopted into and haven't renewed our mind to the process of what that is going to entail and the sacrifice that it will require from us. I challenge you today that you can be in this world and not of this world. You can. And I would even say this, the world needs more people who think and function like that. Where yes, our... And as sad as it is today, we have adopted the things of this world. Why? Whether it's the fear, the division, the the single-mindedness, the bitterness, the unforgiveness. We're indistinguishable because we haven't signed up for renewal of the mind. Renewing of the mind. If you notice how it was spelled, it's not one time. God, I'll say a prayer. Boom, it's there. (laughs) Osmosis, I got it all locked in. Renewing of the mind. Renewal of the mind, consistently and disciplinedly, rhythmically renewing the structure 
of how we think and function to make better and to make new. You know, I, uh, when I, uh, the first time I ever really had to sacrifice, I feel like, for the Lord, I'll never forget it. Uh, when I graduated high school, I couldn't play in the NFL like I thought I could. Um, some people were like, wow, that's cool. You had a dream. It's like, no, I was, I was not good. Don't worry. Uh, it's like, I, I like went through the phase. It's so funny because I worked in youth ministry for so many years. I, I'd every, like eight out of 10 high school dudes would be like, I feel like I'm going to make it to the NBA, the MLB, the NFL. And I just literally got to the point towards the end where I'm like, no, you're not. You will not. You are not. Like, we are from a town of 15,000. You are a big fish in a small pond that's never seen an ocean. You're going to get killed. No, I'm kidding. But it is funny because, anyway, uh, there's, one, there's one kid in all the years that I did youth ministry with thousands of students, 120 pounds. But anyway, oh. Uh, I say this because I felt like for me, I like lived my whole life of like, oh, I want to do sports. And then like after high school, you're like, wait, sports isn't the whole world anymore. It's like, no, unless you play fantasy football. <laughs> Austin's in here. He knows I'm kicking him. <laughs> oh, started one and six, still beating him. Anyway, uh, but I go to, I got, my parents are like, you didn't have a trip at 18. When I did this mission trip, I come home. And I had spent some time in India and kind of traveled all over. It was an incredible life-changing experience. But missions wasn't really for me. I got into my hometown and I just started. I was pretty good at sales. So I moved up rather quickly in this company and started running a couple different GNCs that were around. And then from there got offered a really, really good job in sales at another spot. that salary was insane. Um, And I was living with my parents. And here's the thing. I had all of the pleasure... 19 years old, I was making 75K a year living at my parents' house. I'm like, I have all the means of pleasure. It's like you go out with your friends and you're like, get whatever you want because I don't have bills. Right? Yeah, 75K now to then would be like 200. Oh, inflation. I hate you. (laughs) We're in the world, not of the world. But I'll never forget this. I did it and I, I was making money but I, and I had the means to get the pleasure I wanted and I just hated it. And I kid you not, I called my dad who was a pastor at the church we were at and he said, you know, I'll pay you a hundred bucks a week to start a college ministry in a town of 1,200 people or 1,200 college students. One college campus, 1,200 college job. And at that time I'd committed to, to doing a community house with some guys. And this is, this is how steep the fall was is, I literally moved out of my parents' house and I didn't have suitcases and didn't want to buy them, so I just had black trash bags. Moved into a community house, was making $100 a week, sleeping on a mattress that my buddy had left there that for, I don't know how, had a hole right in the middle. So you couldn't sleep straight, you had to sleep like a C. Oh, I'm in an inner tube, like... But I tell you that story because that was the first time in my life where I really had to sacrifice my pleasure and trust in the peace of what that sacrifice was. And to this day, I'm so happy I made that choice. But many of us, all we've sought is just this pleasure of this fallen mankind's 
We have no peace. We have anxiety, we have mental illness, all of these things that just come from just the incessant, do this, it doesn't work. Do this, it doesn't work. Do this. And it's like God is saying, will you renew your mind? Renovate your mind and from this place recognize that I can transform your life through a transformed mind in which pleasure and peace don't have to be disconnected. They can be conjoined. In closing, there's a choice today between double-souled and renewed. The choice of if your pleasure produces peace or if it sacrifices it just comes down to if you have signed up to the process of renewing your mind or if you've chosen to just accept that it's okay to be double-minded. The world will convince you that it's totally fine to do what this does is it pollutes the pleasure you were meant to experience by sacrificing the peace that God purchased for you. A renewed mind produces renewed pleasure. Do you trust today that in the trade there is peace and rest for your soul? Pleasure and peace come from the one who completes and the realization everything else in this world will only complement. Stand to your feet. In closing, we like to just take a moment of uh, solitude and silence as just this place where we just take inventory and even for some of you to maybe ask God a question or have a conversation or have a moment of repentance. See, this isn't about us beating ourselves up for what we're not as much as it's a reminder of who we can be. Take a moment to process with God. God, do I have peace? Have I pursued your peace or just lived a life of pleasure? Or, man, as I assess the pleasure of my life, it's not producing peace and I want it to. Will you? I don't know what that looks like for you, but I just want to create space to whatever it looks like. You have a moment with the Lord right now to process. So we'll give about a minute and then we'll recite the Lord's Prayer together as we worship with one final song. Would you repeat this with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us. Our 